Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, I am joined by both Jody Bottom and Armand White, two gentlemen I admire and have had the pleasure of hosting on the podcast several times, but it's the first time we're all three of us in the same conversation. We are going to talk today about books adapted to the screen. When it is that the movies are better, what does it take perhaps to improve upon storytelling when once it meets cinema? And of course, we're thinking about how important cinema was to the 20th century and perhaps still is, and therefore what adaptation has meant bringing the books to the world and in certain cases making the stories again in their defining form. Gentlemen, thanks a lot for joining me. How are you doing? We're doing fine. We're doing well out here in the Black Hills. Glad to hear it. I would like us to start off with something that we've treated on the podcast, in fact, several times, and I have a great fondness for. Perhaps the best adaptation of a book to the screen, that is to say the best improvement, the transformation that cinema, and I think only cinema, can offer, and that is The Godfather. What are your thoughts there, gentlemen? Titus, I like starting with The Godfather, which I think was Armand White's suggestion, because for the purposes of discussing how books and movies interact, and there are things I want to get to, what the narrator problem and the visual details, but The Godfather is archetypal for our discussion, I think precisely because never was there a larger gap between a dreadful book and an utterly superb movie. This is archetypal. This is fundamental for our discussion because we ain't talking, did Greer Garson do a good job in Pride and Prejudice? We're talking, this is a book so potboiler, sloppy, that a huge subplot in the Godfather book is about a woman whose genitalia is too big and her struggles to make enough money to have an operation to take care of it. When Coppola sat down with the author, Mario Puzo, they began with a red pen, scratching out what they were not going to put into the movie. I think Armand White's suggestion we start here is exactly right. That helps found any kind of discussion about what is it that movies and books do when they relate to one another. Well, sure. I'm glad you agreed. Starting here. The Godfather was interesting also from a uh, cultural point of view since it's an adaptation of a trashy book, but a book that was also extremely popular. And what's fascinating about the movie that Coppola wound up making is that he was able to raise the level of popular acceptance. The Lucy segment that you mentioned is what almost everybody talks about when they talk about what was left out of the book. And that's interesting to me because it's so sordid that it's the part of the book that everybody remembers, indicating that people loved the novel The Godfather because it was not high art, because it was not great literature. They loved it because it was trash. And then here comes Coppola approaching the peak of of that period of American filmmaking that I think of as the American Renaissance. And he decides to make an art movie out of a piece of extremely popular trash. And he didn't disappoint anybody. Uh, He raised everyone's expectations. He raised everyone's level of appreciation. I, I agree that it's archetypal because it's a great moment in popular culture, proving that film could be art, proving that audiences could appreciate something more than trash. I think along those lines also, it's very interesting to me how Coppola went further. 
how uh, in the two sequels, he went beyond Mario Puzo's commercial imaginings and made a movie that each time out with each sequel became more and more personal to Coppola. And I like to think more and more personal for the audiences who responded to the first Godfather movie. Many of them, not all of them, responded to how Coppola took them deeper and deeper into the ethnic subject, into the moral subject, into the Catholic subject. It's an archetypal achievement, indeed. Yes, you're very much right, Armand. This is also a trilogy. If the first movie was not enough of a shock, what a success, both in its popularity and its prestige, and the fact that the critics and the audiences were right. This is great. But it then turned into a trilogy, which is astonishing perhaps the highest achievement of the 70s and therefore of the new turn in American movies. It's proven something that in a way had long been true of the movies. You don't need to adapt Anna Karenina necessarily. Often movie makers figure out all sorts of books that are either trash or just unimpressive and they see something in that story that perhaps also fired up the imagination of the audience in the case in which these trashy novels are popular but which couldn't really come across on the page, either because it's not really for books, but for movies to do it, if it's visual and cinematic, kinetic, or because the author was just very, very limited. It often is the case that popular stories have something in them that's worthwhile, but it occurred to a trashy writer who has no idea what to do with his idea. It's up to the director and his screenwriter, to a producer who buys the rights and figures out how to put a team together. It's up to Hollywood to figure out what the diamond in the rough is and then get about polishing it and turning it into indeed a work of art. This was not so rare in the 70s, right? Right after our Godfather and Godfather Part Two, we have Jaws. I think that's another example of a very mediocre story that is turned into a quite impressive movie. Well, you know, uh, before we go to Jaws, I'd like to step back a little bit and uh, deal for a moment with how Hollywood treats literature or fiction. Consider this example. The Godfather was a major box office hit for Paramount Studios. And in that late 60s, early 70s period, producers at Paramount were very much interested in uh, mining the potential of pop fiction. Just before The Godfather, in 1968, there was the Ira Levin novel, Rosemary's Baby, adapted into a film by Roman Polanski, also an artist filmmaker. Rosemary's Baby is a very good film version of a potboiler novel, although it doesn't rise to the same level of cinematic achievement as The Godfather. It's a serious filmmaker taking a pop novel seriously and using his craft and using the paramount resources to make as artistically acceptable and intelligent an adaptation as possible. You probably couldn't have hoped for a better film version of Rosemary's Baby than the one Polanski made. And then a couple of years later, Paramount was also involved in the production of probably the best-selling book of that era until The Godfather, Eric Siegel's Love Story. Huge success, sappy novel, uh, not really an embarrassing novel, really, because it, it's very short, clean. Uh, it tells its obvious story very quickly and not badly, as I recall, but certainly not a novel for the ages. I think Paramount was involved in the publication of that novel. Before it was actually printed, Paramount was involved in turning it into what would be a cultural event, making sure that it's a book that people would read, it's a book that people would certainly know about, so that when it came time to make a movie of it, that was already a fatal complete sort of. So you have the book of Love Story, which isn't much, and then it's turned into a pretty terrible film, but also a hugely successful film. 
Okay, I just like to uh, go back to that background to sort of set the scene for when the Godfather movie came out, Paramount's involvement in publishing and in book culture, reading culture, uh, reached a peak with the Godfather. I just, I think Armand White's initial broadening of the topic is exactly right and helpful. I'd even want to take one step back further. We need to consider how Hollywood has thought about books for a long time. In fact, we might want to distinguish the middle brown novel from the trashy novel. The trashy novel, really, it's always been done, but we can see a kind of late 50s, early 60s expansion into the truly trashy novel. Harold Robbins' The Carpetbaggers is pot-boiling, beach-reading, summer pulp. And we get a Steve McQueen vehicle out of one of the side stories called Nevada Smith, that's in The Carpetbaggers. We get The Carpetbaggers made as a movie. Well, um, you know, Hollywood's willing to mine this kind of pulp. We don't really have a good word for the upper levels of trash, but Harold Robbins' The Carpetbaggers is pretty much the model for this kind of book. The Godfather, of course, is in this law. Paramount was involved in the publication of that book and was always intending that it would become a movie. There were ins and outs, as there are in the tale of the making of any movie. There's a moment when the studio wants to back out. But generally speaking, we get that move. If we step back to the 50s, we see the middle brow. I'm thinking of The Silver Chalice, Thomas Costain's bestseller, which is middle brow goo made into a Paul Newman movie. Sloan Wilson's The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, which is made into a high moral status of the middle class movie with Gregory Peck. In the 50s, we're getting this run of middle brow books. If you really want to take the kind of pot boiler popular book turned into movies, you might want to look at The Robe. You might want to look at these Christian bestsellers of olden days to see this kind of sword and sandals movie that would get made. And all of that means that Hollywood's always looked to book writers to provide them with the possibilities for movies. I think eventually, Titus, we want to get to the point where we take up the question which started us off, which is to say I had proposed far too grandly and without any nuance that no great movie has ever been made from a truly great book. Now, you know, we, we need to explore that. What we're looking at right now is what logicians would call the contrapositive. We're looking at great movies that have been made from bad books. Of course, the fact that we have a truly great movie by anyone's measure with The Godfather made from a book which is by anyone's measure not a great book doesn't prove the stronger thesis that great books can't be made into great movies. But it does point us down the road, and this is what I take Armand White to be reminding us, Hollywood seems to thrive and do well with a certain level of book. Francis Ford Coppola, as an artistically trained director and as a genuine artist with an artist mind, can look at The Godfather and see in it the bones of, I don't know, Henry IV Part Two, Or he can see that in it is the deep political theory question about the transference of power from one generation to another. He can perceive something deep about families and how they change from one generation to another. He can see something deep about the violence at the core of the American experience. He can see all this with that trained artist eye turned on this soupy goo of a pot boiler. 
And that's wonderful. And maybe Polanski did that too with Rosemary's Baby, although Levin had done a smoother job of creating that book. And he has a better prose too, I think you know, in the way that Stephen King has what I've described Agatha Christie having as well, an invisible prose. You never notice the act of reading when you're reading Stephen King. The prose never rises to the point where you step back from the experience of reading and saying, ah, that's a beautifully constructed sentence. And it never falls below a certain level where you interrupt the activity of reading to say, oh, that's a terrible sentence. Levin was a fine, polished, middle-brow writer turning out a, a fine, polished horror story. And Polanski looks at it, casts Mia Farrow in the title role as Rosemary, and we get, you know, a very interestingly filmed take on this. Now, Peter Benchley's Jaws, again, it is a step below in terms of polish. It was summer beach reading. It was popular stuff. We could look at The Exorcist for another book in this popular horror genre, a much more Catholic book, and consequently religiously deeper with the religious roots of horror. But still, you know, in all these cases, we can look at a certain level of what we might call beach reading and talk about how in the 1970s, a handful of artistic directors were capable of looking at these beach reading books and seeing art in them. Yes, there's the artist's eye, and it's worth dwelling on what it means to figure out that this story would work so well on the screen that there's really something to add to what a book can offer. It's obvious, of course, in the case of trashy books that have a nugget in them that's great, but it is also tied, I think, in a certain way with what you're saying about middle-brow books, books that aren't bad, books that nobody would uh, feel bad for reading or think it was a waste of time. But still, in a certain way, they can be improved upon by cinema. And perhaps this has to do with transformations in the novel itself or in Middlebrow in the age of cinema. It occurs to me that one thing that's more obvious in the movies when once you see the structure and the important scenes, artists who make their way to Hollywood have an eye for America. In the case of The Godfather, you see this is the American way. The mafia are supposed to, in some way, integrate. Don Vito does want Michael to Americanize, to be a patriot, to fight the country's wars, indeed against Italy, and so on and so forth. Jaws, we see an almost Tocquevillian setting of the New England township and deliberative democracy and the people and the interests and the mayor all talk it out, but of course it all collapses. Modern America, people running from the cities to the beach, running from the city and the crime, as the protagonist does, they end up in this fantasy of the American past, white picket fences, small maritime town, and all of these things can be done so well on camera. It is so startling and at the same time so natural to see 70s America turn into an imitation of the 1850s with a Puritan name, of course, Amity is the town in Jaws, but also with this look and memories of the work of whaling. All of this stuff can be put together and juxtaposed in cinema in a way that you couldn't do on the page, or perhaps it would take greatness to achieve. Another example of the talent that the Hollywood artist at the peak of cinema brings to mediocrity to show why is this a great movie, because it's about America and it is very closely observed, is Psycho made after another utterly unimportant, utterly forgettable novel, Robert Block did. 
There, you see Hitchcock bring together all these sorts of things. Start with Phoenix in 1960, the booming New South, a city that quadrupled in size in the 50s, and we start with a crane shot that shows us this new city. And then going to California turns out to be going into the past, this abandoned turn-of-the-century America. And again, the movies allow you to create these juxtapositions. Look at America as a jumble of different ages that are in some strange way coeval that allows characters to have a great variety of roles. It's the only way really to make the characters themselves come alive to show how do they look in this America? How do they look in this other America? A potential in them that you would not have noticed had they stayed put, so to speak, had cinema not come in to show you the variety of America and to bring out the potential of characters. Well, it's interesting, Titus, that you go to Jaws and then you jump to Hitchcock. I think there are real connections between the styles of those different artists. And what you say about images of America in both Psycho and Jaws makes me think about how Hollywood deals with what uh, Mr. Bottoms called the middle brow novel. Hollywood has a way, and I guess any good movie should have a way, of making uh, whatever story it's telling, whatever subject it's dealing with, become evocative for the audience perhaps evoking more things or greater things than the novel itself might have originally dealt with, especially in the case of a book like Jaws. Spielberg's film brings in a larger world than Peter Benchley is ever able to put into words. And so I, I'm also still interested in that notion of the Middlebrow novel and how the Middlebrow novel seems perfectly suitable for Hollywood's purposes. Not great literature, but middlebrow literature that uh, I guess you could say the average person responds to or the average reader who has class aspirations responds to thinking this is the kind of book that's going to make him or her a better person. And then Hollywood simply finds a way of adapting that into popular forms of storytelling that then can, if done well, evoke things for the viewer, if not equal to the best-selling novel, are better than the best-selling novel. You know, in talking about cinema, that question of uh, middle-brow culture always must be dealt with. For me, what's marvelous about films like Psycho and like Jaws and The Godfather, even, and to some degree, even uh, Rosemary's Baby, these are films made by artists, not just typical Hollywood filmmakers, not by Hollywood craftsmen or hacks, but made by filmmakers who transform everything they touch into something that shows a personal vision at least those three films, Psycho, Godfather, and Jaws, are archetypal examples of Hollywood filmmaking at its best. And I guess we could say literary adaptations luckily turned into things of excellence. Titus, I'd like to take up both those points if I could. It would be interesting to add to one's thinking about Hitchcock, the question of whether he was afraid or shied away from great literature. The three probably, I don't know, best authors that Hitchcock took up, John Buchan, the governor general of Canada, adventure writer who wrote The 39 Steps, Patricia Highsmith, who wrote a novel called Crisscross that he turned into Strangers on a Train. It's minor Patricia Highsmith, the much later 1990s or early 2000s movie, The Talented Mr. Ripley, is much higher class Patricia Highsmith work. But still, Highsmith is a serious mystery writer, ranked among mystery writers for literature. And of course, Daphne du Maurier, who wrote Rebecca, which is in many ways the least Hitchcockian of Hitchcock's great Hollywood adventures. Also, the only one of his movies to win Best Picture. 
which is a producer's award instead of a director's award. So Hitchcock never actually won Best Director from Hollywood, which is a tale in itself. But still, it's with Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca that he directs an Oscar-winning film. And it's his least Hitchcockian film. And these are all tendentious lines that I'm mentioning, and we could discuss them. But note in that run of Buchan, Highsmith, and Daphne du Maurier, we don't have a world-class author. And he's willing to delve down into pretty deep stuff. Now, we could take up his very loose adaptation of Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent, too, in the very, very early films. But, you know, in the Hitchcock that we know and love, we don't have him encountering and dealing with a major author. Now, if we can bracket that for a second, I want to take up Armand White's second point about the middle brow and ask this question. What is it that makes a middle-brow novel into a successful movie? We've been speaking about Rosemary's Baby, The Godfather, even Jaws, as really artistic authors reaching down into, not the dregs, but reaching down into literature to pull something out and extract the essential story and elevate it into art. The prototype for that was Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, where he takes a low-class middle brown novel by Booth Tarkington and turns it into a movie, although not much discussed these days, a movie that one used to see commonly on lists of greatest movies ever made, Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. You know, I, I went through a period where I was sort of fond of Booth Tarkington, but he's still coming in at the low end of the middle brown. Take a much better middle brown novel, The Cane Mutiny, right? Herman Woke died recently at, what, 105. And there was much looking back on Herman Woke's middle brow career and a realization that if we take the middle brow as a genre of literature in itself and not as a judgment, if we use that name middle brow, not as a judgment saying, why can't they be Thomas Mann? but say this is a genre of literature in itself, Herman Woke comes very high in that, and The Cane Mutiny comes very high in that. Now, I think the twist ending of A Cane Mutiny is unearned by the novel, but still, you know, it comes in very well. Is the Humphrey Bogart movie version of The Cane Mutiny a great film, the way The Magnificent Ambersons is a great film? I would probably say no. It's a fine film. But I don't think anybody's going to put The Cane Mutiny on the list of greatest movies ever made. So we have Booth Tarkenton's Low End of the Middle Brow made into a truly great movie. We have Herman Woke's The Cane Mutiny as the upper end of Middle Brow made into a fine but not great movie. And then we take, say, that place where the middle brow begins to blend into high art and say, this is John Steinbeck. He's that place where the middle brow storyteller starts to move into genuine art and he wins the Nobel Prize for it. Has there been a great movie made from a Steinbeck story? Well, maybe Of Mice and Man has been filmed several times, Cannery Row, East of Eden. But, you know, if you take the best of Steinbeck, something like The Winter of Our Discontent. No, the answer is no. We can't have a great movie version of this. I thought of the Winter Our Discontent, Titus, when you mentioned the Tocquevillian sense of America. That's what that novel is directed at, very seriously. And also, you know, this Christian understanding of the calendar, there's a Good Friday setting. All of this is there in the novel, and the movie version of it 
And generally, the movie versions of Steinbeck, I think, can't follow him. This would be my claim. If that's already present in the novel, then the artist as film director and screenwriter has much less freedom and to some degree is trapped in an uncongenial artistic problem. And we don't get great movies made out of that. We have to step down to, you know, the Magnificent Ambersons or even below the middle brow to summer pulpy beach reading like Jaws, like The Godfather, like Rosemary's Baby. Not to say that it's always successful. Armand White pointed to Love Story, which was written by Eric Siegel, who was a classics professor at Yale. He was writing, you know, pieces on Herodotus, use of toon, the Greek verb to be. Well, this, you know, wonderfully pulpy love story was being serialized in one of the women's magazines. I think we need to move in other directions to find authors who translate well, like Michael Crichton, who it may be unique. Every single book he ever wrote has been made into a movie, from The Andromeda Strain down to Jurassic Park and on. Every book he wrote got turned into a movie because he was writing screenplays in novel form. All of this gives us a range of fiction, but it starts to tend toward my hard thesis you can't make a great movie from a great book. <laughs> well, I'm hard pressed to think of many examples of a great book resulting in a great movie. I can think of examples of, well, depends on how one wants to define a great book, because there are some uh, excellent movie versions of books. Well, before I answer that, I like to say at the bottom, I'm surprised it's something you left out when you mentioned Steinbeck. I was expecting the obvious. Let's not overlook the obvious because the obvious is, is important. And the obvious would be John Ford's film of The Grapes of Wrath, which I would say is a great movie by anyone's measure. I don't know where it stands in the John Steinbeck canon because I'm not a Steinbeck scholar and I've only read a few Steinbeck novels. But that's a truly great film. And it's, it's not even one of John Ford's best films. It just happens to be an extremely expressive work by a very great artist. And what that suggests to me is the fact that needs to be mentioned, that perhaps the reason why great film artists step down when they adapt literature is because they are not handmaidens to literature. They are genuine cinematic artists. Their job is not to popularize literature, although that is exactly what Hollywood hires them to do. But as artists, their job is to express themselves. And I think John Ford <laughs> did that magnificently in The Grapes of Wrath which is a movie that people tend to sentimentalize, but they're sentimentalizing their own sentimentality. They're not really noticing uh, the subtlety and the beauty that John Ford brings to telling that Steinbeck story. Whether or not it's true to Steinbeck, it's certainly true to John Ford, and the Steinbeck source becomes a launching pad for Ford's artistry. The Grapes of Wrath is a moment where the Hollywood studio system can be admired for giving a genuine artist a chance to express himself, even though the studio heads simply wanted him to make a already popular book an even more popular and commercial product. Studios got lucky. American culture got lucky in the case of John Ford. This is often a beautiful thing I, when I think of uh, other superb film versions of novels. I also think of a, a set of films by another Hollywood filmmaker, Clarence Brown. I think maybe his best sound films, because Brown started out in the silent era, his best sound films, I think, are all adaptations of novels. These would be uh, Marjorie Kennan Rawlings' The Yearling, I think Enoch Bagnell's National Velvet, William Saroyan's The Human Comedy, 
and finally Faulkner's Intruder in the Dust. These are wonderfully emotional film experiences and also visually eloquent. So here's an example. You have a journeyman Hollywood filmmaker who hasn't got the artistic status of Hitchcock or Ford or Spielberg or Coppola. But he could look them in the eye without blinking, I think, especially in, in the case of those four movies. They fit the Hollywood studio's requirement to make a popular film version of popular books, although I guess the Faulkner book is not popular. But it's still a pre-existing title that Hollywood could exploit. And so Clarence Brown made not just perfectly acceptable film versions of them, but made the best imaginable exemplary pieces of cinematic storytelling. Maybe Clarence Brown himself is not at such a height that he had to reach down to those books. I mean, how do you reach down to Faulkner? But he certainly did not embarrass Faulkner. He brings out values in that story that few other American movies have matched since. Uh, the story being about race and lynching in, in the American South. There's a wonderful example, I think, of how cinematic artists, I should say, <laughs> don't bow down to literature, but they meet it and sometimes even surpass it. Yeah, I would say I rank John Ford higher as an artist than I do Steinbeck. And I'm not sure if this is a popular opinion or easily defended, but it inclines me to agree with you. And just to tell our audience briefly where it stands in the John Ford filmography, Grapes of Wrath came out in 1940 as the culmination in a tetralogy on American history. It shows America in the early 20th century, and it follows, of course, Stagecoach, which is set in the 1880s, and again shows America and the American drama, but away from the big events. Before that, of course, there's Young Mr. Lincoln, which is perhaps most poignant for dealing with the greatest American story, but only at the fringes. And of course, before that, there was Drums Along the Mohawk about the revolution, and the way out west when that was still upstate New York going towards Ohio. And again, it is not the revolution, it is Americans and pilgrims in the time of the revolution. So very Tocquevillian take on American history, and he crowned it with this Steinbeck story. It's a wonderful series of movies. All four, by the way, came out in the space of one year in 1939 and 40. Remarkable achievement in American cinema and cinema pure and simple. One thing that has occurred to me listening to you to talk about the relative status of various writers and filmmakers, how about Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and John Huston and Howard Hawks, who made the movies, The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep, there I think these are middle-brow writers who reach the top of middle-brow the top of genre literature. And on the other hand, you have American filmmakers of the first rank, John Huston and Howard Hawks, are in the top five, in the top 10 of American directors. Here, I think there's perhaps more of a union of a remarkable writer and a remarkable director. Titus, I think you don't want to conflate middlebrow and genre fiction. They're different things. There's some crossover, fair enough. These are categories with fuzzy edges. But at the center of these categories, there is a distinction to be made. We don't compare, say, a classic Middlebrow novel like The Cane Mutiny directly to The Maltese Falcon or Chandler's The Long Goodbye. You know, one of the things that we could talk about there is what makes them literature, how they fulfill genres, what Chandler and Hammett's gift was. And I think a lot of it is prose. They develop a voice. 
that then becomes the voice of film noir, that becomes the voice of hard-boiled fiction, and they're willing to let other things go. There's a famous story told about the filming of The Big Sleep in which the director calls up Raymond Chandler and says, we can't figure out who killed the chauffeur. And Chandler's reply is, I don't remember either, because somehow that kind of fidelity of plot and carefulness, the Henry Jamesian, you know, feel for every detail in place like a Beethoven symphony, that's not what Chandler's doing. And it's not what that movie's doing. It's never really made clear, even in the movie, who killed the chauffeur in the car that drives off the Lido Pier. And Hammett is aiming higher as an artist in some ways. He's hanging out with Lillian and they're doing New York-y stuff. And I might actually say The Thin Man rates high in my estimation, both as a book and as a movie. Although that may be sentimentality about the time that I read the book. It is a picture of how adults can have a marriage that is successful you know, kind of wonderful in its way. But are we going to say that this is high literature? The question remains, can you make movies out of high literature? You know, maybe Grapes of Wrath is an exception. Maybe David Lean's Dr. Zhivago is an exception. And David Lean is interesting because in the 60s, before he started making those huge cinemagraphic epics with Lawrence of Arabia and Ryan's Daughter and Dr. Zhivago and that run of films, Before that, he was doing Dickens adaptations, and his Great Expectations may be the best Dickens adaptation ever. So we've got, you know, these possibilities, but they are pretty thin on the ground. Unless we descend into a particular species of novel and say, okay, let's pick the best of those. Have the best of those been made into good movies? Hard-boiled fiction? The answer is yes, clearly. We've got great movies. We've got quirky movies with Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, for instance, which completely changes the book, but it is a very quirky film. But we've got real cinemagraphic artistry going on there within that species of novel. Armand White mentioned The Yearling, and we could take children's books as a species here. Now, a children's book that has not aged particularly well, I think, is The Wizard of Oz. Tolkien showed when you make a fantasy world, you have to make it rich and consistent. Terry Pratchett learns this. Everybody after Tolkien learns this from Tolkien. L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz stories are sent in a fantasy world that changes at his whim, profoundly inconsistent. I don't think these books have aged well. Nonetheless, it was considered a classic of children's literature, and we got a great movie made from it, The Wizard of Oz. Again, if we descend in certain lines here of fiction, we can see the top of those lines getting made into great movies. But let's take high literature in one line. Let's take the modernist novel. This, after all, was our great innovation. This is what we did at the beginning of the 20th century. Really, for the first half of the 20th century, we created the modernist novel as the archetype of high fiction. And that's from Joyce's Ulysses and Proust's Remembrance of Time Past through to late 40s, early 50s is where we really get the end of it. Probably the last two great high modernist novels are Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus, which is 1948, and Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. You know, by the time we get to Thomas Pynchon, we have the modernist novel turned into the anti-modernist novel. 
Gravity's Rainbow is a huge, sprawling modernist novel that declares that, in fact, the modernist novel fails to explain what it was supposed to explain, which was everything. The world is unknowable. If we take that run of the modernist novel, was there a great movie made from any of it? Has Joyce ever been made into a great movie? Maybe one short story with John Huston's The Dead, which is the last short story in Dubliners. Has Proust ever been made into a great movie? The answer is absolutely not. Has Thomas Mann been made into a great movie? There was a pretty good miniseries version of Budenbrooks, which is his first novel, which is really a late Victorian novel instead of the modernist turn. But The Magic Mountain, Dr. Faustus, Joseph and His Brothers, none of that happens. The Man of Qualities, Robert Musil, you know, Invisible Man, for that matter, has any great modernist novel, which after all, Titus, was our high artistry in the first half of the 20th century, which is the well from which the movies kept drinking. Have any of them been made into a great film? I think the answer is no. There's Death in Venice after the novella, so it's not nothing. <laughs> you think that's a great movie? Yeah, I'm not sure it's, I would rank it as great, but it's uh, the only one that strikes me as <laughs> worth mentioning. I would rank it as great in places, actually. And with Lucino Visconti, we have to also consider his film of Camus the Stranger. I guess we could also mention Lampedusa's The Leopard, although I am less fond of The Leopard than most people, but it's still a Visconti masterpiece in its way. Just kind of stick with Mr. Bottom's point and yours, Titus, with uh, Death in Venice. Visconti, certainly a cultured person and also a great filmmaker, understood how to best adapt a serious piece of literature to cinema, but also into his own kind of expression. That's where the difference comes in. For great filmmakers, the goal is not simply to be a handmaiden to literature, but to be their own original artist, to be their own personally expressive artist. I think that Visconti achieved that with Death in Venice. It's a long movie. It has its own rhythm. I sometimes jokingly think you could read Death in Venice probably twice in the time it takes you to watch the movie. But when the movie is peaking, you couldn't ask for anything more because all the senses are engaged. It uses your mind and your eye together. This is what a film artist should do, not simply perform like a Hollywood hack and give the popular audience Cliff Notes versions of great novels, but make a film that is itself an expressive work of art. I would champion Death in Venice as that, even though that's not Visconti's greatest film, or even one of his five best films, but it has his artistry in it for sure. That's really well observed. But one of the things we want to point out is Death in Venice is a short story. Right. It's not The Magic Mountain. It's not Dr. Faustus. It's not the grand Thomas Mann. You know, your joke about you could read that short story twice in the time that it takes to watch the movie is well observed. And it opens to me, I think, this thought that the trouble with truly rich, great literature is that it closes doors for the filmmaker. The filmmaker is kind of reduced to being the documentarian, you know, the person who lays out the Cliff Notes version of it. We've seen movie directors and screenwriters rebel against that role ridiculously, as in the version of The Scarlet Letter that ends with a declaration of the joys of the sexual revolution as she tears the scarlet letter off her breast, throws it to the ground, and rides off in sexual joy into the sunset. You see the filmmakers rebelling against their role as documentarians of the great literature, ridiculously. 
It's one of the worst endings of a movie that it is possible to imagine. But in another way, why could Death in Venice work then? If it's a rich, thick piece of literature with the miasma and the disease of Italy caught up in an unacknowledged pederastic attraction for this boy, caught up in the question of what is it that makes the artist and what is his inspiration. I mean, it's a rich story. But also maybe to take Mr. White's point, it's a short story, which means if you make a long movie out of it, you've got room as the film director as artist to do your work in a way that you wouldn't if you did, you know, a fuller novel that where you just had a lot of plot to get through. There isn't much plot to Death in Venice. So you can give the feel of the book in a way that, say, A High Wind in Jamaica gives the feel of that book, or Train Spotting gives the feel of the book without being faithful to the book, but it gives you that feel of that world. That strikes me as interesting things that screenwriters and directors can do, but notice they need space to do it. One would think that Don Quixote Cervantes is cinemagraphic, that there's a possibility here of a great movie, and we've never had one. Now, the question of the narrator and the transition of narrator from fiction to filmmaking, who takes on that role, and one of the things that does to us. But right here, directed to the points we've been raising, filmmakers as artists need space. And truly great literature has used up all that space. You have to start being unfaithful in order to create space for yourself. A very clear noticeable example would be the Disney adaptation of Kipling's The Jungle Book, which basically took the characters, cartoonified them, and threw the plot out the door. Titus, when I was young, I hated the Disney version of The Jungle Books because it was so damn unfaithful to the book that I loved. I see what you mean. I still don't like it big fan of Kipling, and I've even watched the Kim movie with Errol Flynn from 1950. It's not much to recommend it, and Kipling is another writer whom you would have thought would be very easily adapted, and the only thing I could really recommend to our audience would be the very famous John Huston, The Man Who Would Be King, which is, again, a short story. As you and Armand have pointed out, with short stories, it's much easier. You're right, it allows the cinematic artist to be inspired to think through what the short story tells and then how to transform that into cinema, especially if you've got two hours or more, as with the movies we've been talking about. As Armand has said, artists will compete. A great movie maker will not wish to be the servant of a great novelist. He may admire the great novelist. He might even think that the novelist is his superior. Still, he will want to have his way to achieve his greatest work of art now, as to the modernist novel, I think they're hard to film because of how distinctive the voice and the strange ambition. It's especially there that artists will clash. Compare that to what we have been talking about, either genre literature or middle-brow literature, in which case it's not that rare that the movie maker is far the superior of the novelist and can bring out something extraordinary because he's using a popular story to reach mm -hmm. an audience, to persuade the audience that this is an America and an American character we want to see, but it just needs Hollywood, the work of the cinematic artist, to elevate what was already popular. Whereas with great works, the competition would be astonishing. I have considered a couple of possibilities 
first 19th century novels. That's what Hollywood loved. That's what cinema was all about. From the 19-teens onwards, any great piece of 19th century writing, many aren't great, were filmed a hundred million times over. You cannot get cinema to stop falling in love, for example, with The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, to say nothing of any number of Edgar Allan Poe short stories. These are not the jewels of the 19th century, but cinema has loved them because they're so romantic. The 19th century was romantic and cinema was understood to be romantic. And so you've got all these Anna Kareninas and you've got all these other things. Some, of course, are strangely missing. Not a lot of Stendhal, not a lot of Madame Bovary adaptations, and none of them worth mentioning, I don't think. But the 19th century had much more to offer in terms of romance, and therefore the magic of the movies fit it better. The narrative structure and how you elicit emotion through cinema, through picture and through kinetics is just a much better fit than trying to do Proust. So I think maybe, since you already mentioned Jody David Lean, T. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom is not a great book, of course, but uh, Lawrence of Arabia is a great movie. You would have expected, on the other hand, some great Dickens, some great Hugo adaptation or something from one of the major 19th century novelists to make a great movie by an artist who is as true as he can be to Dickens, but has got his own notion of how to make this story interesting again to be readily identifiable as the work of a new artist. And that's not much on offer. The 19th century novels were to cinema sort of like the myths of Greeks or to the tragedians. Just keep going back to them and you do it again and again. But I'm not sure anybody achieved what the Greek tragedians achieved in reworking the myths, which is quite strange. Well, may I say, uh, since you brought up the turn of the screw, I have to make the joke. That's been filmed multiple times and very poorly, most recently, in a version simply titled The Turning, which should have been titled The Screwing. (laughs) Okay, yes, the 19th century novel, great source for storytelling, and especially for the film industry, because the film industry is based on storytelling. Spielberg loves the word stories. Hollywood thinks that that's the basis of what cinema should be, although that's not necessarily what cinema can be. We can't leave out D.W. Griffith. didn't adapt novels, but he was inspired by them. His Way Down East really is a loose adaptation of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. And you can see Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities all through Orphans of the Storm. The point here being that a film artist does not need to adapt literature, but may well be inspired by it. And I like to look to the example of Griffith, you know, the man who invented cinematic narrative, coincident with the modernist novel. And in many ways, the art of cinema is itself a real adaptation of modernist art. It was Griffith's invention of cross-cutting an intensely detailed close-up that modernist novelists were creating with words. Those ways of seeing things and presenting things, of uh, using time, of using memory. Griffith was doing it in cinematic terms. Well, I don't think Griffith was as cultured or refined a man as Visconti, but perhaps he could feel that change being necessary in human consciousness at the beginning of the 20th century, which I would guess is something that our modernist novelists also felt and understood and were working at. 
I go from that point to saying how, uh, especially in the uh, 1950s and 60s, the creation of what we call modernist cinema attempted to deal with narrative ideas in the modernist novel in purely visual and kinetic terms. Well, especially like uh, the French New Wave directors were able to translate the modernist novel's use of time and use of memory, as I said before, in purely cinematic terms. The French New Wave artists understood that what the modernist novel was doing with narrative, silent filmmakers like Griffith were also doing with narrative. In cinema, the modernist novel, can we say, finds its cousin, perhaps? Well, that would be an explanation of how it is that these high modernist novels never got good film adaptations, because it would be some gilding of the lily or some clashing impossibility of combining these two art forms the way, say, German art song managed to combine poetry and classical music. We never achieved that in combining modernist filmmaking with the high modernist novel. You know, that's an interesting observation. It's an explanation for why, for instance, the 1967 movie version of Ulysses is unwatchable. These are disasters of films in the attempt to do this. It would be an explanation for why a storyteller with a strong vision of reality, like Philip K. Dick, who is the most influential science fiction novelist, this whole layers of reality that we get from The Matrix and so on, all owes its origin to Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick, at the same time, could not write his way out of a paper bag. I mean, the prose is just unbearably bad. Well, not unbearably bad, because you can read The Man in the High Castle. You can read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. But the fact is, Philip K. Dick makes better movies than he makes fiction. Because what has he got? He's got a story and he's got a take on deep epistemological structures of reality. If you're a filmmaker, what else could you want as your source material? Whereas Henry James becomes a question, can we make a great film from Henry James' novel? I would have thought The Turn of the Screw would work if I didn't have before me the catalog of cinemagraphic failure we've had with Turn of the Screw. First of all, it's a novella. It's not Wings of the Dove or The Golden Bowl. It's not some enormous Henry James masterpiece. And it's got a view of the world. You know, it's got a question. The question, of course, is whether the main character is even alive. For instance, in the most Jamesian of later fiction, The Haunting of Hill House, you know, that question is brought to the fore. The main character may actually already be a ghost while this is happening. And so, you know, you would think that there would be something there. And yet, of course, somehow dealing with James, we've just got one disaster after another. To this point, though, where I've said the great short story might offer space for the filmmaker that the truly great novel does not, I think we would have to take up the question of the miniseries, that sprawl of the miniseries that BBC started in the 70s. You know, there'd been serials before, but this was the first real explosion of those. And we got Trollope, and we got Dickens, and we got Jane Austen, and we got the 18th and 19th century canon laid out in miniseries here. And, you know, those Merchant Ivory films that tried to do some of the same stuff in shorter space, and they certainly gave the aesthetic to what would become the BBC miniseries you know, PBS Masterpiece Theater stuff. 
And it would be interesting to sort of take up those and ask, does the miniseries grant sufficient space for the filmmaker to make a great film out of a great novel? I think the answer is probably no, but it would be interesting to explore it in terms of our conversation of the space necessary to do this kind of work. Well, it seems to me that the BBC and PBS's franchise on the 19th century novel is almost as craven as Hollywood's milking of the New York Times bestseller list. 19th century novels are just fodder for the BBC. It's a way to keep that industry going. I will say that I prefer daytime soap operas to those adaptations. I think <laughs> it's like an elongated version of Cliff Notes to watch those BBC series. And uh, the Merchant Ivory films are not much better. The Merchant Ivory adaptation that I can tolerate the most would be uh, Howard's End. And I think close to a disaster as a piece of cinema. The things that make the novel compelling, Merchant and Ivory are just not capable of translating in visual terms or uh, rhythmic terms, or even in terms of recognizing details of experience that Forster describes. They just don't do it. They go the BBC route and they make a prosaic visual thing and call it an adaptation. Mr. Bottom's idea about short fiction probably being better. I'd like to also raise the point of short novels and point out one in particular, Carson McCullough's Reflections in a Golden Eye, which I think is one of John Huston's finest films. And he was able to relay that story again in purely cinematic terms, purely visual terms. And that's a genuine success as a piece of filmmaking. It's an example of literary adaptation. Great John Huston fan, so I'm glad that he gets, in fact, a number of credits. Didn't John Huston also direct one of Flannery O'Connor's novels, Wise Blood? For me, the film of Wise Blood, it doesn't suffice for, for what <laughs> you get from, from, from O'Connor's writing. Whereas with Carson McCullers, I think Houston goes beyond her writing, and that's not to disparage her writing. I, in this context, I had mentioned his adaptation of the last story in Joyce's Doubleers. Yes, yes yeah. did, sure. It might be a question of why, for instance, have we never had a great George Eliot movie? The most read George Eliot is Silas Marner because it's assigned in schools. It's assigned in schools because it's short, you know, not because it's actually good George Eliot, but it, because it's the smallest coherent piece of George Eliot you can assign students. And, you know, let's not have them read Middlemarch. Let's have them read Silas Marner, The Miser. That in itself, I think, is revealing of how we've given up on literature. If I can, Titus, at this point, I'd like to mention that my latest book is called The Decline of the Novel that speaks to the question of why it is that the novel seems no longer the central art form of our time. And movies, of course, are one of the answers to it, but not a sufficient answer, as we're exploring here when we take up this question of the relation of literature and movies. There's one last miniseries I would like to mention that I actually liked a lot, which is when they took Evelyn Waugh's most sentimental novel and with the young Jeremy Irons, turned it into a miniseries that was visually rich with that, you know, Merchant Ivory golden light stuff, but still visually rich and kind of interesting filmmaking in a way that it would be hard to take, put out more flags or some of the other wah to make a film out of. But I'm, I'm going to go back to say that miniseries is something that, that I remember with fondness in a way that I don't remember the disaster of adapting Trollope's Phineas Finn. I know what you mean. I'm also a fan of that early 80s, Bright City Revisited, 
miniseries. You know, I'd have to say I'd rather hear Jeremy Irons narrate the book, which he has done, than see him act it, which he has also <laughs> done. So even at that level. But I do agree that of all the stuff that uh, came out of the Merchant Ivory notion, I think these people are Bulgarians, and I don't care how many people who are Anglophiles disagree. I think it's bad taste. The books were great, but these movies and the series are a disappointment. I think Henry James and Evelyn Waugh, for somewhat related reasons, would make great movies because of their peculiar language. If a great artist were to fall in love with them, he could do them justice because he could add all from himself the visual element. And yet this translation hasn't happened. Falling in love with an author and then turning it into cinema, especially in those cases where the author is such a style master that he allows you and in a way encourages you to transform this into visual terms. And instead we get you know, this vulgarity, a liking of costumes and manners and mannerisms and quaintness, which is an embarrassment. This is not what the great 19th century novelists were about. More often than not, they were against taking manners this way because it corrupts democracy to go gaga over aristocratic tricks. But you lead me to a question that I do not have an answer to. Of all the 19th century novelists, the most elegant who has such an appeal to us and is short enough to adapt is, of course, Jane Austen. And I don't know one great Jane Austen movie. Uh, ditto. <laughs> There's something that should not go unsaid. People who love novels had an education or grew up in a culture where reading was valued. Or speaking personally, I don't need to have film adaptations of great novels. Uh, the novel is a satisfying experience in itself and an irreducible experience also. And yet, and yet, we can go back to our friend John Huston and look at his film version of Moby Dick, which one might argue is unfilmable, maybe. It wasn't necessary to make a film of Moby Dick, and yet I enjoy the effort. And I enjoy the effort differently than the way I enjoy Melville's novel, Melville's book, I want to call it, not a novel. I'm glad to have both, actually. <laughs> I get different pleasures from both. There's something marvelous confirming to see Melville's book acknowledged by a filmmaker like John Huston. And I would not call it a failure. I would just call it his homage to Melville. Better than that, his homage to the culture of reading and literature. I think of it as Huston's way of saying to the movie-going public, we have a literary heritage. It's fun. <laughs> That's a really nice point that we can appreciate these for their effort, for their homage, for their recognition that we have a shared culture. Right. And the artist is responsible for responding to that shared culture and interpreting it. And even if it's not great, there's something worthy in the project itself. And then when you take a genuinely good filmmaker, even if they're failing, they're failing in interesting ways. So all of that, I think, can combine to make this worthwhile. I do want, Titus, if I can, to pick up your Jane Austen point and tie it to the narrator problem. The last long miniseries, I think from the early 2000s, that they did at Pride and Prejudice, opens, as you just about have to when you adapt Pride and Prejudice, with the famous first line, that it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a large fortune must be in want of a wife. And it puts that in the mouth of the sister Mary, who in the novel is the repeater of sententious and silly thoughts. 
right? Truisms, she says them stupidly. The father is always mocking her by saying, you know, give us a truism about this, Mary. And when she stumbles, he says, well, while Mary is composing her thoughts in that brutally ironic way that the father has. So we take Jane Austen's line, which is irony in the line of Henry Fielding, expressed in the voice of Samuel Johnson, which is Jane Austen as narrator in her essence. You know, we're going to do the cruelest of observations about individual humans and their psyches, but we're going to do it in the balanced prose of the classic style of the 18th century. We take that line and the filmmakers, having no one else to give it to, give it to Mary to say. And everything that's a problem with translating the narrator's voice in great fiction into cinematography is apparent there. Because the camera and the angle of the camera takes a lot of the place of the narrator. We could talk about what happens to narrators, how you make a movie with a narrating voice, as sometimes happens. You know, we could look at classic examples of Hollywood inversions, like Sunset Boulevard narrated by a dead man. We could do all of this exploration. But at the end of the day, we're going to arrive at a point in which we say, with great fiction, the narrator's voice is an important voice, and it does not translate well into film. Yes, I think that's right. The 19th century novels, I think, are more filmable because they are far closer to the status of the Greek myths for us than anything else. But then you run into this problem. It's very hard to think how you could convey the voice of Jane Austen or of Charles Dickens, the strange combination of seriousness and humor to an audience, including to an audience who knows them. I'm trying to think, again, in terms of matching great artists, novel and cinema, And one possibility that has occurred to me is perhaps a great artist in cinema at the beginning of his career, then he would be more willing and more intrigued by this possibility. How could you make something that people already know to be great, but whose greatness they don't quite grasp? How do you make it obvious to them in a new way, since the novelty of cinema can do that, just like it can get the greatness out of things that have merely a speck of it. But I, I don't have examples of that. Uh, I Can think I that one last example here, Titus, the most filmed piece of Dickens is also short. It's A Christmas Carol, which has been made over and over and over and adapted and mocked and inverted and everything you could want. It opens with a famous line, Jacob Marley was dead to begin with. We have to know this or else nothing that happens will be understood. He was dead as a doornail. Dickens goes on in that Dickensian voice why a doornail should be thought the deadest piece of ironmongery, I cannot say. Personally, I would have said a coffin nail. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and far be it from my unhallowed hands to touch it. That's Dickens, man. The wordiness, the irony, the run-on. He has a thought, and he can't let it go. He'll keep going for, you know, pages sometimes, describing a waiter in an inn who will never appear in the novel again. Dickens is sprawling in this way, and the narrative voice captures that. So in A Christmas Carol, the potatoes in the Cratchit's house are on the stove, and they're boiling, and they're knocking at the lid to be let out. That's a Dickensian narrative moment. The verbs and attributes of life to inanimate objects that come alive. 
has there ever been a movie version of A Christmas Carol, which is short enough that it gives space, you know, for Alistair Sims to chew the scenery and the rest of it, but has there ever been a version that actually captured the Dickensian narrative voice? I think the same problem that we just saw with Jane Austen shows up with Dickens. You know, uh, <laughs> that's a great example of what's wonderful about literature. I want to adapt Mr. Bottom's term of the narrator's voice in cinematic terms and suggest that the narrator's eye. In cinema, what the eye shows us is the artist's sensibility. And in that sense, I'm, I'm going to back up on, on my ditto to you, Titus, on No Good Jane Austen film and suggest Amy Heckerling's Clueless. Because what we get in Clueless is not a strict adaptation of Emma, but we get Amy Heckerling's version of Emma. And what we see through that narrator's eye is a sensibility that is actually a pretty faithful adaptation of Jane Austen's sensibility. And what I mean by that is that Amy Heckerling is able to take many of Austen's concerns and express them in modern ways through modern experience, through modern language, even Amy Heckerling's own invention of language, which if it's not quite at the level of Dickens, it's still clever and original. It's absolutely hers. And it's also very faithful to the ideas that she learned from Jane Austen. So the narrator's voice exists in cinema, but it exists as the narrator's eye and exists through the expression of sensibility. I want to go back to Mr. Bottoms' good mention and thorough mention of Hitchcock's Rebecca and the idea that Hitchcock never won an Oscar, but Rebecca won the Best Picture Oscar, which is a producer's prize. And that is because <laughs> Rebecca, it's not a Hitchcock film, it's a David O. Selznick film multitasking and overseeing of everything. It's a less successful version of that than Gone with the Wind was. That's an awfully successful example of how David O'Sullivan micromanaged. Rebecca is not. And so Rebecca lacks Hitchcock's sensibility. It's got David O'Sullivan's sensibility all over the place, which is why it's a lesser film. Yes, that's very well put. I am a moderate fan of Clueless, and I certainly recommend it, especially uh, I think of it as somewhere between parody and homage, or a weird mix of the two. I don't think it's quite Jane Austen, but I do agree with you that in a very mocking, very silly guise, almost like a sitcom, it in fact gets at things that are far more serious than that, and it has the virtue of doing it without being ostentatious, without trying to show off, trusting that the audience will see that there's more there. Titus, I wonder, just let me take a slight step back and say, if you had to say what is the single most common ending of the modern novel as an art form from its 18th century English foundation after Cervantes with Fielding and Richardson and Defoe through to the second half of the 20th century. If you take the novel as an art form, what is that modern novel? What is its most common ending? It is, and the young people properly were paired off in marriage. That's how the novel wanted to end. It was deeply tied to the marriage culture, to a sense of how civilization moves on, how you tame and understand and celebrate the sexual impulse and you know what civilization does. It wants to end that way. Mysteries want to end that way. Read an Agatha Christie, who we have to take as the model of the modern mystery novel. Every Agatha Christie novel ends with the young people in the novel properly finding their mates. One of the problems I have with Clueless, which I love, well, I loved it when it first came out, I, I revisited it a few years ago, 
is that it lives after the collapse of the marriage culture. So that there's a plot problem that in her homage, she cannot solve, which is that the George Knightley character is her stepbrother. And it ends, it tries to pass that off with a joke at the very end of the film about, oh, of course I didn't marry him, which I think one calls in movie making, hanging a lampshade on the plot problem. You know, saying, we, we know that this is a plot problem, right? The whole thrust of this narrative has been that you're going to properly pair off the young people. And then we make a joke that we can't do it because they've got sibling relations to one another. That in itself, the collapse of the marriage culture and the sense that the novel as a story is telling the story of marriage. Now, it's not the only thing, of course, but if we had to take one kind of overarching meta-narrative, it would be the marriage story. Hollywood nowadays lives after that. This, for instance, is why Hollywood has never successfully recreated the screwball comedy. To my mind, again, this is a conversation for another day, because there is no explanation for why, as in Bringing Up Baby, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn are so sexually attracted to each other. Or it happened one night. Half the movie is about their sexual attraction to one another. And if you made that movie now, the question would be, why don't they just sleep together? And the screwball comedy needed that sexual tension and needed it to be unresolved, except by marriage, in order to create the arc of the story. Hollywood nowadays is so far beyond the marriage culture that even when we were making Clueless, which is marriage culture central, you know, we have a beautiful, wealthy woman. How does she get married? Is in some sense the plot of that novel. And yet the novel is dedicated to the Prince of Wales because it's Jane Austen on the condition of England at the same time that it's a book about how do you marry off successfully a rich, beautiful woman? Because for her, those are the same question. The condition of England and the need to promote the yeoman class are fundamentally the same question. Clueless can't take that up for a variety of reasons. And at the very end, the homage and the funness of that new movie, for me, faltered. I would respond to that by saying that's why Clueless is what it is. It doesn't pretend to be a strict adaptation of Jane Austen but it steps off from Jane Austen to express Amy Heckling's sensibility, which is very modern, and all the pluses and minuses that that entails. She's making a movie about a society in which marriage is no longer believed in, about a materialistic youth culture. So she adapts Jane Austen for her own purposes. That's why I brought it up. But I think Heckling's sense of comedy with mirth is borrowed from Austen, well enough to make mention of it. Interesting point about the lack of screwball comedy. The best film I've seen all year is a screwball comedy about a gay man and a heterosexual woman. It's called Straight Up. I, I don't want to overinflate it because what can compare to bringing up baby? But it takes all the Shakespearean twists screwball comedy also uses, but it does it with a modern sensibility in recognition of today's sexual confusion. And it's rather clever, rather funny. I mentioned that to you, Mr. Bottoms, to say that uh, the spirit of the screwball comedy has not vanished. Uh, it's only vanished from the Hollywood studios, from HBO, from Netflix. It's not dead in the human spirit. I would take this as confirmation. I think you're absolutely right. But if you're going to make a screwball comedy now, mm -hmm. you have to provide some explanation for why they don't just sleep together. Sure. I want to recommend straight up to you. I think you would find it of interest. Not to say that you're going to like it, but it wouldn't insult your intelligence. And it is a work of today. I think you would find it insightful in that sense. 
I think this is indeed a very interesting problem, what happened to the novel and what happened to our society. If you compare Clueless with Emma, you see that Amy Heckling realizes that things have changed. The comparison is indeed evocative. And I especially take your point, Jody, about the relationship between marriage and the novel. I think the novel is romantic. The novel is, that is to say, about romance or love or about interior life. The novel belongs to the modern world because the modern world is full of this increasing burden of individuality. More and more people have to be characters. The readers of novels gradually themselves think of themselves as protagonists in romantic stories. The novel deals with our interiority. It's why it starts off with letters. It's very private. That's where the action is. Human beings in modernity are very, very private. Politics just doesn't count to us in the same way. And so that brings up the problem. How do I know I'm a human being? What should I do as a human being? Being a human being, how should I live? And the answer to that, that the romantics gave, is marriage. And in Jane Austen, you can get it right. Marriage for some, not for everybody, for some in Jane Austen, marriage is a happiness. For some, it's a necessity. For some, it's punishment for their wickedness. But at least there's a possibility of success, which reminds us, of course, of Shakespeare's comedies. But every other romantic says, this is not how it works. Put this romantic burden, your individuality, your desire to find yourself perfectly in somebody else that will also complete you. This self-obsession is going to lead to a massive conflict between society and the individual. The effectual truth of romantic love is adultery and suicide, as with Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina and Madame de Renal in The Red and the Black, and however many other great novels. This is what you get. The pressure is just too great. Jody, this is a French thought. You're more on the Anglo-American side of the novel. I perhaps am more on the French side because of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Julie or the new Eloise. I think of it as a ticking time bomb. The burden of all this individuality was always going to explode. It's putting on the romantic couple just too much pressure. To get back to the movies, to Hollywood, to the greatness of the scruple comedy, one thing you notice if you watch Bringing Up Baby or It Happened One Night, if you watch Adam's Rib at the end of this run in 49, if you watch The Lady Eve and the Palm Beach Story for Sturgis, His Girl Friday to go back to Howard Hawks, or The Greatest of Them All, The Awful Truth, Leo McCary, no kids. The romantic couple is so romantic and they are so obsessed with one another that they can have an entire drama turn the world upside down to see whether they can love each other, whether divorce or the threat of divorce can get them to sober up, learn their lessons and get back to marriage in modern America with modern women and modern men. But there's no kids. It's that romantic. And even in that sense, like this is not a future. These are movies and these are novels about an individuality that doesn't really have much future. It was always going to collapse. Well, that's why it's, you know, a common moment is to take the young people, you know, end the novel with they're getting married and imply the rest down the road. One quick story that I think you'll like, Titus and Armand, um, just in proof that the Victorians were not naive about marriage. It was Frude, I think, the historian who said of Thomas Carlyle's marriage to Jane Carlyle, that that marriage was proof of God's providence, for thereby only two people were made unhappy instead of four, which is one of the cruelest lies ever about, you know, a, a marriage. But it, it's proof that the Victorians were not naive about what marriage was. Nonetheless, they had a sense emerging out of the 18th century and the pre-Victorian 19th century novel like Jane Austen and Walter Scott, you get a sense that something about the civilization and culture is tied to the marriage question. 
you know, in some ways we're citing here the material that I take up in the book, the decline of the novel. The only element we haven't mentioned after naming the individuality and the rest of it is my tying it to Protestantism. But apart from that, I think we're now walking through some of the work I did in the decline of the novel book. Relating it to movies is interesting. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I think Mr. White's point of, that we would have to sort out what the narrator is in movies, how camera angles take the place of the narrator, how the composition of the shots and the details and the objects in them take the place of narrative, the way the camera lingers on objects. That kind of translation is interesting. It's obviously there. I think it would need a lot more explanation than we have time for. But yeah, you know, this is one of the things that's going on. And of course, art is always to some degree about the time in which it appears. So that we need art now that comments on our time. At the same moment, however, we have to recognize that part of being an adult is stepping back far enough to recognize that all artists were writing about their times, and yet nonetheless they can make universal claims. Part of what's going on in the Victorian novel with which Hollywood was so in love in its early days is the realization that the marriage culture is profoundly tied to the perdurance of the state and the consistency of the civilization and the possibility of progress onto some horizon in the future for which we had this Victorian confidence. If we are willing to take all of that as indicative, not just of their time, but of some deep observation of how human beings pursue happiness, then it seems to me, you know, our conversation today has not been wasted. We can ask ourselves, why didn't that translate into the movie in ways that we would have expected? Why is it that modern movies can take these stories and has to adapt them, whether well, like Clueless, or horrifyingly bad, like The Scarlet Letter? Why is it that they feel they have to do that? And finally, you know, that brings us to the translatability of art and the question with which we started, which was, in general and loosely speaking, why has no truly great movie ever been made from a truly great book? Well, that's it's all fascinating it's all well and well put. I want to say this in response to it. Noticing the sensibility of a filmmaker and my idea of connecting the voice of the narrator to the eye of the narrator from literature to cinema, this idea is 100 years old. And it is the failing of our education system that people don't know it and are not absolutely familiar with it today. Also a failure of our education system that people are not reading. And so this conversation among us or among people who are educated in a different era and educated to a different purpose than young people today. They don't read. Nobody in Hollywood apparently reads because even the bestseller list adaptations that happen today are things like The Goldfinch, just literature that is, doesn't rank. So we're, we're, we're in trouble today. We're in trouble. We can't appreciate literature. This generation doesn't appreciate literature well enough, evidently. And this generation doesn't appreciate cinema well enough, evidently. All the same, I'm going to recommend straight up to you and to Titus. I think it's going to be a revelation to you. And I want to pick up on something you said before, Mr. Bottom. <laughs> that very good point about Dickens' ability through language to animate inanimate objects. That's not what he said, but that's the feeling I get when I read Dickens and names like Mr. Pocket. I wanted to say again about that insufficient Merchant Ivory adaptation of Howard's End. For example, what I always took to be a beautiful moment in the novel 
Schlegel goes back to Howard's End and her relationship feelings when she sees certain objects in the house. Beautifully expressed in the novel, it, <laughs> none of that is there in the movie. In the movie, all you get is furniture. There's nothing imminent in the furniture, but Forrester told us what was imminent in the furniture. And I want to tell you that there is a movie called uh, The Bronte Sisters by a French filmmaker named Andre Tichine. He was an acolyte of Roland Barthes, but he, he went way beyond that. In uh, Tichine's film, The Bronte Sisters, there's a scene where the Branwell Bronte has died. The Emily Bronte character, played by Isabella Johnny, she picks up his overcoat. And as soon as she puts on his overcoat, she becomes overwhelmed. And the way Tashine presents the scene, we understand the same thing about that coat that Forster described about the furniture. And it all comes through visually. It comes through in Tashine's sensibility. It comes through in Tashine's eye for composition, for color, for visual rhythm. This is stuff that's not being taught anymore. These are things that are not appreciated that make film, as I said, the cousin or the sibling of the novel. This is when cinema is good. It's good in the ways that literature can be good. Yeah, I take your point because, again, it expresses human individuality and tries to make it relatable to people who have not had the experience. Fixing the fact that we don't understand other people very well or that we lack experience because the job of literature is also the job of cinema. And I think we'll talk about these matters another time. Gentlemen, this has been a marathon session. I thank you very much for your time and for a wonderful conversation. All the best, gentlemen. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, too, Ronald. Thank you. Thanks.